My name is Terrell Jermaine Starr, and I am the founder and host of Black Diplomats Podcast. And our very, very special guest today is Beatrice Finn, who is the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. She won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize for leading the campaign coalition to prohibit and eliminate nuclear weapons. She accepted the Nobel Peace Prize with Setsuko Thurlow, who survived the atomic bomb attack on Hiroshima in August of 1945. So thank you very much for taking time to talk with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Trill. It's really, really nice to be here. Yeah, same here. So Oh man, so we, you're, you're in Switzerland. Yeah, I'm uh, here in Geneva in Switzerland. How is it being in Europe during these COVID-19 times? I mean, you're dealing with, you know, you specialize in nuclear weapons disarmament, but we have a, a, a current pandemic that's taking us. So how, so how are you managing? Well, I mean, personally, you know, we're quite, you know, Switzerland's in this kind of weird uh, situation like surrounded by France, Italy, Germany, with like lots of people commuting across the border daily to, to work in Switzerland. They live across the border. So when it started kind of hitting more than Italy, you know, you kind of like, okay, it's going to get bad here as well. Um, but I mean, at the same time, you know, I think this, this case just like, it's one of those things, also the WHO is located here. Uh, the World Health Organization, and I have a lot of friends who work there as so one of the big, big employers here in Geneva. And I've heard people say for several years, like, there's going to be a pandemic, there's going to be a pandemic. All the scientists are saying that. It's very similar to all scientists say there's going to be an accident or nuclear war eventually. Right. And then it hit, hits and, you know, everyone's like, you know, oh, we could never expect this, but the experts did expect it. And I think it also hammered home really, you know, I think it's, it's become this kind of way of seeing the world as so connected. I think it's fascinating to see the entire world going through kind of a joint trauma at the same time in a way that we haven't really seen before. Uh, it is kind of, you know, I can see people in South Africa, in Brazil, in the United States, you know, we're all going through the same thing, the same motions, and that's quite unique. And I think it's something we should you know, also see as, you know, we're very similar across the world. Uh, and this idea yeah. of how my security, my survival might suddenly start depending on the healthcare system in another country. Like we're really, truly in this global world together. And that, that is scary, but I think it's also a unique opportunity, right? To really understand these kind of, you know, we have to solve these problems together. We, we definitely do. And my first question to you, Beatrice, is... How does one even enter into a career of nuclear disarmament? And so I just want to hear your story before we get into talking about why we need to abolish these things. Yeah, I mean, for me, I never really thought about nuclear weapons growing up. I grew up in Sweden, uh, outside Gothenburg. Um, I was always really interested in kind of uh, peace and conflict issues. I grew up in an area with a lot of immigrants. Uh, so my school, you know, I think I was one out of two kids in my class that had parents that were born in Sweden. And, you know, in particular, this was, you know, I started school during the Bal Balkan Wars uh, with the sort of huge changes in Europe and in the security situation in Europe. And 
you know, had my best friend, you know, her parents and, you know, fled from the Iranian revolution and came to Sweden and others came from the Pinochet regime in Chile and, you know, this big starvation in the 90s in Somalia. So I had all these friends and kind of really early on understand that even though Sweden might be sort of peaceful and safe and we're not suffering from huge war or crisis situation, what happens in the other side of the world still impacts us. Uh, I think that that kind of made me want to work on these issues, but I, I, I never really thought about nuclear weapons. You know, being aware of these things after the Cold War ended, you know, I, I, and it never struck me as relevant. Um, so I studied international relations at the university uh, and really wanted an internship and got in touch with this peace organization. And like, hey, we have a paid internship. We were just like sort of heard of. This is amazing. A paid internship, you know, in Geneva, you could go to all these UN meetings and stuff. And it's on nuclear weapons. And I remember being like, oh, that's really lame. That's so boring with nuclear weapons. I want to do human rights. I want to do other things, like more exciting issues. Um, so I really wasn't uh, sort of like hesitant to get involved in this issue from the beginning because I just felt like it was old fashioned. It was outdated. It's no longer current. But the more I found out, you know, I, I, my first experience was really going into one of these UN meetings and you see Russia, the United, United States and China kind of debating and arguing. And to me, you know, it's both like very sterile and kind of abstract but at the same time also really touched upon those things that I was passionate about, the justice, equality, sort of humanitarian law, international law, you know, they, these kind of things, you know, for me, you know, nuclear weapons, the more I learn about it, the more I realize sort of how nuclear weapons is really the ultimate symbol of oppression and kind of insanity. Like we have these ginormous weapons that can kill us all. And, you know, all these usually all white men in these meetings, they just nodded and pretended like that was completely rational. And, you know, I think that that's really what got me hooked on this issue. I want to, so how is it for you? Because you're in this room with all white men. Did you see any other, did you see any people of color in these conversations? You know, I mean, obviously at the United Nations, all governments are represented, right? And you have the, the whole African group, you have the Latin American group. But, but when it came to the nuclear weapons issue, they were very marginalized. Uh, they were kind of discarded as not important. And so the extreme sort of like you have the, the P5, you know, they are the most important ones and everyone, you know, just waits for them to say things. And then you have the NATO states, the European the Western states and then the others, and they don't really matter. They make a bit of noise. You will be worried about Iran, but you know that, that those, you know, so I, you can definitely tell that um, when it comes to the governmental level, there's very sort of strict hierarchy which countries matter and don't, um, which becomes extra bizarre when thinking about the countries that have suffered from the impact of nuclear weapons. I'm thinking, particularly testing, for example. You have Algeria, where the French tested. You have Kazakhstan, where Russia tested. Uh, Marshall Islands, uh, you have the kind of Pacific Island states that suffer from the US and French testing. Um, they get discarded as not important, and they are the people who are dying still from this. Um, and when it comes to the kind of the society side and expert side, uh, very white. Uh, it's you know, become a very kind of American and European issue. Um, and it really is a problem because it's been kind of an issue that's been so isolated that it's only nuclear weapons. It's not connected to anything. And that's why you have this 
problem with governments that they can sit and talk about protecting civilians and being passionate about human rights and you know democracy and yet threaten to mass murder civilians with nuclear weapons in another room because they've sort of compartmentalized the issue and i think that's also you know a reason because there isn't this kind of global conversation about nuclear weapons it's very reserved for these kind of male formal experts uh, that sit in washington and london and moscow yeah and the, and the reason why i think that is is because well you know one it's in the united states for example our state department if you weren't an ivy league graduated person harvard yale you weren't going to go there was a point where women uh, were not allowed. I, I spoke with a, ambass a, a female ambassador who said when she entered the foreign service, she had to start off with her husband before she would be recognized. And so, so it was white male centered, uh, exclusion of women. People of color came later. Colin Powell, when he became the when he became the Secretary of State, he said that he was appalled by the, the low numbers of, of diversity within our State Department. So, just foreign policy writ large has been exclusionary and i know that because i was the first black person from the university of illinois to get a degree in russian studies and this is back in 2009 so it's always been exclusionary but also going back to your point about how the people of color are in the minority groups are disproportionately impacted <clears throat> it's kind of like what's going on in america which goes back to my article about policing when you when you when you decide that violence is the the tool who's perpetrating the violence right and who are who's the victim of it and it's always some person of color who's the person who's the victim and i think when we also talk about nuclear weapons i think people we're we're so used to people talking about tanks and and f-15s and conventional warfare which is something that's another conversation but when you talk about a nuclear weapon when you talk about kilotons and yield i just think it's just so above people you talk about the minuteman three submarine launched ballistic missile like people like it just goes beyond our mind because we're not interfacing with it every day i, I mean i think absolutely and the point you make about the police is, is so accurate and i think it has to do with like who gets to define what security and safety is mm -hmm. and who gets to be sort of controlling like don't worry this is for your safety it's actually killing people um, indigenous communities, you know, you have in, in, in the U.S., for example, in New Mexico, in Nevada, for example, they tested this on indigenous communities that people that didn't matter to the people in power as much. Um, and so they are developing cancers. Uh, women are getting miscarriages and given birth to stillborn babies, but it is for your security. So be quiet. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, comes back to the police. I mean, it's, supposed to be, it's protection. But protection for who? Uh, and who gets to decide what the protection is and what actually protects us. And I think that, again, coming back to the pandemic, you know, what we see now is that the things that protect us is healthcare, um, you know, uh, getting uh, sick leave from your work, uh, education, you know, these kind of things are what protects us. And it's not just, you know, naive to say that, it's, it's established in science. Uh, you know, societies that invest less in weapons and more in healthcare and education, people are more safer. But somehow it's seen as weak and, uh, to, to talk about those things. You know, we did these calculations about the U.S. spending, what is it, almost $35 billion in 2019 on nuclear weapons. I mean, this is a weapon that is 
you know, not supposed to be used, right? Like it's a weapon that just exists to not be used. And, and Beatrice, do you mind talking about the, the spending or what that is? What does that entail? That entails the, the kind of warhead, the maintenance of that, the delivery systems, the missiles, the submarines, um, the kind of uh, maintenance and security for these kind of weapons as well to protect them from terror attacks. Theft and test, yeah, right. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. include the, the cleanup from the test sites, for example, or the, the medical bills for the veterans that are still suffering from uh, implications from being present at the test, for example. Um, so it's still quite just limited to the weapons and the delivery systems. And $35 billion in a year. And we did the calculation of uh, how many um, ICU beds, how many ventilators, how many doctors, how many nurses. And, you know, it's just like staggering numbers of how much of things that actually the American people need right now to be safe, to survive, um, that we're spending on weapons of mass destruction. So I, I think it really, you know, this comes down to power and who gets to have the power and who gets to decide what, what protection is. And I think the, the exclusion of uh, you know, people of color, of women, of indigenous communities in the decision-making around these weapons have, of course, shaped who gets to decide what security is. So I, I wanna share with you my brief time. I was a, a military reporter. So <laughs> I pretty much cover politics now, US politics, and so I was at, before I joined The Root at my full-time job, I was a military reporter for a site called Foxtrot Alpha. And so my editors allowed me to um, find my little niche of things I was interested in. And so my editor was pretty keen on nuclear weapons and the, and the, and the military writer who I replaced was somebody that was really into the science of it, the tech. And so he was somebody that was interested in these um, maneuverable missiles, right? Maneuverable. And people call them hypersonic, but they're actually all, all of them are hypersonic. So what they mean are they're maneuverable, right? He was really into the science and the machinery of them. And so once I started writing, the first thing I came to my mind was, fuck, why, why, why do we have these things to begin with? So, right. <laughs> so, so I started writing about, oh, this is pretty fucked up and we this, this weapon shouldn't exist and do you know how much backlash i got from saying how dare you talk about this we just want to hear about how many kilotons that you know how, how much you know kilotons does this warhead have or we want to know how, how you know how, how you know does it go at mach 20 or mach 25 or whatever the case may be or does that motor burn out once it entered the, you know, those stuff like that. And so I, when I looked at it from my lens, the first thing that came to my mind was, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing that came to my mind was settler colonialism. That's what I, that's instantly what I thought about because I grew up in Detroit. I was never introduced to these, to nuclear weaponry or anything. But when I interacted with them, when I started studying them, Settler colonialism was the first thing that came to my mind. I said, oh, this is what uh, uh, an imperialist power uses to oppress people. So so I find that in military writing, especially, there's not enough conversations about why these things don't need to exist, which is why I wrote this article saying that if we think back on the fact that President Obama, who 
I really believe that he had a sincere effort to cut our nuclear arsenal because a lot of people don't know there were upwards of 75,000 weapons, you know, um, at one point during the 80s. And now there's something around 14,000 or so, roughly around that number. Uh, Obama's had a sincere interest in cutting the uh, our arsenal and retiring some, you know, some of our warheads, but Putin didn't want to play ball, right? You know, so that, and that's a whole nother conversation, but he did approve a trillion dollar modernization, right? And so I want to ask you about what does it mean for America and with Obama to approve the $1 trillion modernization of our nuclear weapons system when you have a con other countries like Russia who are also expansionists. And so how, how does one become a leader in America against nuclear weapons proliferation in light of all of this? Well, yeah, I think that's really, you know, and I, I think you hit so many good points that also talking about the way this is being reported on. It, it's, you know, one of my frustration is to, you know, try to talk to media and it's like, yeah, 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 talk about the, we don't want to talk about the humanitarian impact. I want to know what Russia is doing. I want to know this missile specific thing. And I get that that's like the sexy technical details, but we've worked really hard to sort of shift the framing of this issue, make it a humanitarian issue, right? And the people that know the most about nuclear weapons are the people who know what happens to your city when it's on fire after a nuclear bomb, right? The, the Hibakusha, the survivors and putting them as like, experts. And I think that that's also, again, with the, the racism and the power, power kind of dynamics that you know, a certain amount of people get to be experts on this issue. And they actually have no idea what nuclear weapons are. They sit in their comfortable offices uh, and, and have never been you know, actually close to it. Whereas the survivors or the impacted communities are discarded as just emotional you know, we don't even know kind of what we're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand this issue, but they understand very well what happens to their bodies and their family members and their environment. So I think that that's also like, you know, trying to get, you know, media to talk about this is a big, big challenge. And to get, because I think that most people can resonate with that human angle. Um, and it's when it becomes too technical and too structural, that's when you lose people and you just, well, I can't do anything about this. So for me, that's also how we get people to, to change, change mind is to, you know, I, I, I really believe that we have a lot of influence over this issue. But the way people talk about nuclear weapons, it's so focused on Trump versus Putin, Kim Jong-un, these missiles, and you feel completely disempowered to do anything. Because I can't change Kim Jong-un's mind. Like, how am I supposed to do that? Um, <laughs> these structures, these military terms, like it's too complicated. But I think what it is is really... You know, we've been brainwashed for 75 years to think that this is security. To threaten to mass murder civilian populations, punish innocent civilians in retaliation for something that the government is doing, uh, wipe out cities full of kids and hospitals and schools and, you know, houses. That that's normal and that's okay and that's, you know, something that reasonable countries do. I mean, it's completely bizarre. We would never accept that our leaders were like, well, you know, if they come at us, we will go into their countries and chop them all up with machetes. I mean, that would be outrageous. Like, why, why, why would we poison, like, we buy chemical weapons, why would we poison them with radiation? Like, it, how can that be legal? I want to ask you, I want to I touch on that. So when you speak with government officials, I find that it's here in, 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 in uh, America, in D.C. especially, 
a lot of the people who are making decisions about nuclear weapons don't know the types of like the humanitarian impact that we're talking about because they have some staffer that's reading all these technical notes, right? It's kind of like, I'll give you an example, uh, like the Iran deal. So you've read it, I've read it. It's not that long. It's like 20 some, it's about 20 some pages, but it's a technical deal, which I personally thought was a good deal. And it's, it's technical. And this whole thing was, we don't want you to enrich uranium. Okay. Like it, it doesn't deal with people's grievances with Israel or any of these neighboring countries. And so it just deals with the fact you don't enrich uranium. Like it has a certain number of centrifuges that you're like, like it's all technical. And I'm saying that I'm pretty sure most people did not read that deal. They didn't, right? Because if you read it, it would make sense, right? And so, I mean, I, <laughs> right? Like, I'm, I'm just saying. So, so when I talk with folks and, you know, a, a, a politician, their go-to is, well, if we get rid of this factory and say New Mexico, for example, then I'm getting rid of X number of jobs. My response is, can you, can you, if, if a person can oversee a, a nuclear weapon site can't they find another job can't they create green energy can't they do something else and so i find that there's this lazy reliance on oh this 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 gives a certain number of jobs to people and if we get rid of these nuclear weapons then how are we going to protect the country and, and my next response would be well you do know america still has the largest military on earth and you still you know it could just be a conventional war and then they also don't know that once you get a certain number of weapons it becomes inconsequential anyway you don't need 7000 weapons to make your point i mean this you know the average size of a nuclear weapon is much bigger than the bomb in hiroshima for example yeah. uh, today and that killed you know, was 175,000 people mm -hmm. or something like that mm -hmm. uh, before the end of 2014, uh, 20, uh, 1945. And, you know, what are you going to do with all these weapons? Who are you going to use them on? I mean, they are meant for civilian populations. Like, we're not supposed to mass murder civilians. I mean, that, that's, you know, that's not a reasonable military strategy. Um, and I always come back to this kind of bizarreness also, like, if there's one country that desperately or absolutely doesn't need nuclear weapons, it's the United States. I mean, it, it's a country that's unmatched in conventional power, uh, has the biggest military, spends more than anyone else. I mean, if the U.S. still doesn't feel safe without like threatening to like blow up the whole world, I mean, what, what, you know, how are we expecting other countries? And this is also one of the problems, like the hypocrisy around nuclear weapons. Uh, and that also comes back a little bit to the racism, I think, that this idea that the white Western countries are, you know, very responsible with this power. They can have this power. If a Middle Eastern country or whew, an African country would have it, that would be very dangerous. And that's why we have this obsession about proliferation. Well, we focus on non-proliferation because our weapons are fine. And us threatening to mass murder civilians is fine. But if they would do it, that would be very dangerous. I mean, there's literally no other country in the world that has used nuclear weapons. There's only one country that has used it. Every single country in the world is more responsible in terms of not using nuclear weapons than the United States. So the idea that, and particularly under this current administration, how much faith do we have in these people that they won't use these weapons? So I, I find it, you know, and this was really fascinating. I mean, this, you know, the, the only country that's had nuclear weapons and gotten rid of them is South Africa. And it was the apartheid regime that developed nuclear weapons. Um, and 
you know, it's a little bit, you know, we'd like to tell the story, of course, that, you know, uh, as the apartheid regime fell and you know, there was a new, new South Africa, no longer pariah state, nuclear weapons doesn't match with that kind of new uh, country that they want to build. But it was also a lot of pressure from the apartheid regime that they didn't want to have a black country to have nuclear mm. weapons. So they gave them up before they lost power and started dismantling them because they did not trust black people with nuclear weapons. And I'm not a lot, saying a lot that, of people don't know that history, that, that no, part no, of it. No, and I, I'm not saying that, that you know, we sh it should be fair and everyone should have nuclear weapons. That's a bad idea. <laughs> it should be fair. Nobody should have nuclear weapons. But, but it's sort of a signal as well how we have the inability to look at our own actions and, and look at other actions. And there's also this kind of the other, you know, the dangerous other um, that is much, uh, that's less rational, but less responsible, more dangerous. We, on the other hand, are, are really safe and, and can be trusted with this power. Uh, and I think that that's a huge problem uh, that we have to fight. It's not a problem of which government has, it's a problem of a weapon, a weapon that is meant, built to wipe out population, civilian populations. Is, is, it's not acceptable. It, it's, it's not acceptable. <clears throat> and as we spoke about earlier, it's just not cost efficient for a civil society, right? Because we spend all this time talking about civil society and we have our American United States uh, USAID and we have our diplomacy where we're talking about this is the way that a civil society ought to live and it's not designed for equality, right? It's designed for domination and to be domineering over people, which is why I think that there's a very direct correlate between, parallel between policing and nuclear weapons it's about control right and so when you think about policing which in america came from slavery and slave patrols you think about the first people that we targeted during a nuclear during during a, a conventional war right with the nuclear attack which was japan and you think about the ways in which we respond to people who want to create nuclear weapons. You think about Pakistan and you think about India and you think about, of course, Iran, you think about who, who wants to create a weapon and you think about North Korea. And what I see there is not so much you're just a nemesis, but what you said, you don't deserve this. And so with Kim Jong-un, for example, I found when, my, was, when I was a military writer, there was just a lot of racism, period, right? So let's just even forget about the technical components of it. The, the whole idea was you're not smart enough to create these type of, of weapons. That's what I saw. Like, they don't have the capacity to create a warhead that would survive re-entry. And for those of us who don't understand that, and so the, 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 a basic one-on-one -on -one is that people assume that when you're sending up a ballistic missile, which goes up and goes down, they think the whole missile comes down to one piece and that's not true and so there's a warhead that comes down um which in the terminal phase um that that and it has to survive re-entry through the earth's atmosphere and so the best example of that is like a spaceship right that comes to the re you know you know and so that i and again we're not going to get too technical with it but the bottom line is that the reporting that you see is that oh my god these north koreans can actually make this it, it, it's <laughs> You know, it, the racism is just unreal. And I think this is also, you know, this is part of the problem. I'm, I'm, I'm also getting really fascinated right now with the language we use around nuclear weapons, right? Like it's very coded language. 
uh, we talk about nuclear powers and the genie is out of the bottle and you know all these things about how kind of insinuating that nuclear weapons are somehow this amazing achievement um extremely powerful nobody calls syria chemical power you know we we, we don't really say well like um a landmine power uh, it's like no it's not a power it's like an awful thing like um you don't really say well you know the genie's out of the bottle when it comes to landmines so they're always going to be here. like why would we say that we so we attribute this kind of sense of magic and amazement wonder around uh, nuclear weapons and i think that's really you know north korea is one of the most poorest least developed countries in the world if they can develop nuclear weapons it's not that special huh like if if a government really wants to have a nuclear weapon they can do it uh, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not magic. It's actually not even that advanced in, I mean, of course, it's a lot of, you know, it's advanced in one way, but this is 1945 technology. This is not fully autonomous weapons, AI algorithms. This is not like taking out a whole country through a cyber attack, you know. And I think that this is also why it's such a um, bizarre conversation, because it's really stuck in the past, this weapon, in many ways. This is not how war happens today. I mean, Russia like, freaks out the United States with some Facebook accounts throughout an election. I mean, this is, this is like a very kind of like, you know, we, we have uh, cyber attacks. We have this whole, we're standing in front of a new military revolution when it comes to artificial intelligence. Like, I think it's really, you know, and, and this idea that this giant old fashioned radioactive bomb is supposed to protect us from those kind of threats. I mean, look at climate change, look at pandemics. You know, we are facing all these other threats. Some of these threats that we are actually facing today can be fought with nuclear weapons. Uh, and yet somehow we still keep this kind of prestige. And it means also that we are extremely vulnerable to a country like North Korea. I mean, without, if we hadn't attributed so much value and prestige to nuclear weapons, you know, it wouldn't really matter if they had it or not. We, it, you know, they wouldn't, you know, they see these kind of meetings with Trump, but now like North Korea looks like it's equal to the United States. And we kind of sort of, it was like a big welcome. I was in Singapore for the for the meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un, and it's like, the, the world held like a big welcome party to the nuclear club thing. Uh, it, it was really bizarre to see how, how this sort of image. And I think that that's really what, you know, we in, in ICANN is trying to work. We tend to stigmatize nuclear weapons, make them shameful, make them um, increase the burden on countries, really, uh, on, in terms of how we see them, you know, make the public disgusted with these weapons rather than impressed with them. And we do that by talking about what they do to people. I mean, this is a big cancer bomb. It's a bomb that vaporizes people, civilians. Like you have this in Hiroshima, you have these prints where the person was and no longer exists. It's just like a shadow on the ground where they vaporized. And you know, kids that survive are developing cancers for years afterwards and, and die from that. Uh, women get, you know, cannot have babies, uh, kids after and get miscarriages or, uh, give birth to stillborn babies like that's what these weapons are it's not prestige it's not power it's inhumane it's it's insane how hopeful are you that we america and russia or just america on its own will scale back or retire its nuclear arsenal because let's say right now we have roughly around seven thousand or 6800 i mean the numbers are around that area um, it won't happen under Trump, but with Biden, 
for example, or some other Democratic administration, how hopeful are you that we can get the arsenal down and what, what would it take? I think can, we can be hopeful that a more progressive government can work to, to scale it down. Um, but I think we're not going to get rid of them as long as we keep sort of saying that they're so essential for our security. You know, nuclear weapons is only weapon, you know, these countries, they've committed to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a legally binding um, obligation to pursue nuclear disarmament. And they've committed to a world without nuclear weapons. Like, that's the goal, and they've stated it. Um, but they're just not doing it, right? And they're doing the opposite, actually, right now. So there's this, again, this contradiction that these are really dangerous weapons, and eventually we're going to get rid of them, but they're also the ultimate security guarantee for our country. And nuclear weapons is the only kind of weapon that we try to get rid of while we still say it's really important to have. And, and this kind of armed control agreements, which is obviously, you know, it's, it's going to go down in numbers. It's not going to go down to zero in one go, of course. So it has to kind of come down um, through these reductions. But we also have to work on the kind of, actually, we don't agree with this. And I find a lot of uh, people who work on this issue, they want new to disarmament. They're so eager to get the first kind of reduction down, but they keep making arguments that, well, we can be equally safe with a thousand less. But then you kind of also buy into the argument that they keep us safe. And if they keep us safe, shouldn't we keep them? Why, why, why are we getting rid of something that keeps us safe? Um, and I find it's a little bit similar on um, just gun legislation and talking about gun. Like you're so eager, and, and I understand it's like a human thing, right? Like we can't get the, the complete goal right now. So we'll, we'll set up for these steps. But I think you have to also be, when you take these steps, you have to work on the, on the public kind of pressure. Uh, the steps are going to go a lot faster if the public say, actually, we don't want any. Uh, and the politicians are then going to have to kind of adjust to that and start meeting the public pressure. And I think that, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter campaign now about the police has been really amazing to see how, how this kind of shift, like, well, yes, you know, there were some proposals for some, um, some restructuring, some different steps, and, 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 and actors like, no, we talk about abolishing the police completely and kind of driving that. Uh, and, and, and you can see that the tension between, well, that's a long term goal, but we have to articulate it in order to get somewhere. So it's a little bit of a strategy kind of conversation. So, but I, I am hopeful. I mean, I think that these weapons are extremely expensive, very dangerous. The coordinates for, these, for your homes you know, on a nuclear attack. It exists in, in, you know, in the Russian command central somewhere. How do people in the media, people like myself, how should we be engaging the public about nuclear weapons? Because <clears throat> like I told you, this, this media landscape is all focused on the technicalities because I know I definitely would like to use my podcast. I'd like to do, my, do more writings about educating people on how dangerous these weapons are well i i think that you know and i think one of this comes down to and i'm really excited to see these movements on feminist foreign policy because i think they have a lot to do with gender roles as well this like macho ideal uh, and i always come back to the iran deal that you talked about before that you know this was a great deal i mean i think that a lot of especially american politicians don't understand what a good deal and how fortunate the world was that iran accepted this deal 
uh, in a way that they, they didn't actually have to, in a way, or like, I mean, obviously, and we have kind of ingrained that, you know, force and threats is somehow strong and negotiations and compromise is weak. And it's kind of zero sum game. I think that that's both a multilateralism and international relations in general. But you can see that when it comes to weapons. Um, as I mentioned earlier as well, that you know, this, you know, we know that societies that invest more, less in weapons and have less weapons around uh, and, and put the money towards education, healthcare are safer, right? So it's a security strategy, but somehow it's seen as weak and soft issues because there's this kind of idea that you have to, you have to arm yourself. To be safe and it's a very emotional thing we love to say that it's the rational thing but it's extremely emotional i mean like just think about nuclear weapons if you don't do what i want i will blow us all up it's like a big suicide vest like i don't care if the whole world ends because like if it's like nuclear war the the impact on the climate and the firestorm is going to cool the climate and it's going to you know wreak havoc on our crops and be mass starvation over 10 years you know it, we, we're pretty screwed and also countries around the world that had nothing to do with it would be the worst, of course, as always. Um, and somehow that's rational, and realist and logical, but it's not, it's just this like very emotional, like if I don't get what I want, I'm gonna bomb the shit out of all of you. Actually, maybe. <laughs> um, and, and I think that that's what we need to challenge. And I think that that's what we're seeing in particular now with leaders, like we have had this kind of revival of the strongman authoritarian leader. Uh, you know, Trump and Putin, and Bolsonaro, uh, Duterte, you know, with this kind of insane macho thing. And I think that the pandemic really shows the weakness of that. Uh, so when there's an actual security threat, these people are useless as protecting the people. They can't, because in order to protect you, you actually have to care about people. So I think that, you know, we have to really think about both in media coverage but also how we talk like what do we value like who gets to again who gets to decide what strength is is strength uh, uh to compromise and get something that's a win-win for both like the iran deal for example uh, whereas some people say like well you gave them something well of course we gave them something because it was a negotiation they gave us something we gave them that's a win that's not that's not weakness that's that's strong um yeah. so i really think that we have to have this kind of you know conversations about what it is that we value in society, what is strength, what is rationality. Um, and I think that that's something. And then of course, also always come back to the human stories. Um, I see that a lot in Europe when we talk about, you know, migration here, uh, people talk about it as numbers, as structures, and then it becomes very easy to support inhumane policies because we don't see them as people. And I think that that's the, the problem in a lot of these things. And when we talk about, you know, refugees, we talk about police brutality, and we talk about all these kind of things. It's like when we see people as people, uh, and we see faces on them, and we see kind of the, the human stories behind oppression, then it's so much easier to move. And I think that that's one of the challenges on nuclear weapons. It's been so kind of um, sterile and so kind of global security strategy um, that there's no humanity left. And I think that that's really why people kind of lost interest in following this issue, because it just feels like an a IR theory class at university. The irony of it is that when you hear nuclear weapons hawks talk about the safety and, and, and the 
the quote-unquote rational reasons behind it. It's all theoretical because there's never been a nuclear war. There's been a nuclear attack, right, which was carried out by the United States, but there's never been a war. And so we don't have anything to draw on in regards to, okay, this is what happened between India and Pakistan or between, um, I don't know, let's just say France and England, for example. Like there's no example of it. And so all these people are just bringing up numbers and scenarios that have no basis, really. That they, 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 they have no, no functional basis. They're all theoretical, which to me further drives on the point that it makes no sense. Yeah, and, and I think that that's really, you know, that's a challenge for us, right, to, to kind of articulate this. Um, a lot of the stories are from 1945 um, rather than current black and white photos. It's, it's kind of, you know, and it's hard for people. It feels like the past. Um, the nuclear site, though, is ongoing. Um, and for example, in Marshall Islands, which is a country that has been the most exposed to nuclear testing, uh, the US tested so much uh, around there. Um, it's, it's now suffering from the radiation still. Uh, they try to cover it up in this dome. They put like a beton dome, which is cracking now. Because not only we use the Marshall Island as test site, but now we're also flooding it with raising sea levels from climate change. They didn't do anything of this. They didn't engage in a nuclear arms race. They haven't contributed to climate change. But first, you know, the Western world bombed them with, with like so many nuclear weapons, way more than, you know, what, the, what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and now we're flooding them with climate change. And that dome might crack because of raising sea levels. And then radiation yeah. will leak out in the Pacific in, in the Pacific Ocean. Hard to mobilize people around prevention, and I think that we see that on climate change, for example, um, and pandemics, of course. Like, again, like all the all the health experts in the world, they knew this was going to come. We don't know when, and we don't know how deadly it's going to be, and we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. But we know pandemics come. Um, so I think that. With climate change, you know, we've seen this huge movement, and I love Greta Thunberg, you know, it wasn't really just her that made this. It was also that suddenly we felt it. I mean, there were fires in all over California, you know, in Sweden there were fires. It got hotter. And I think that people really understood it, that, that it's happening. And then it kind of makes it easier to mobilize and take action. Uh, the problem with nuclear weapons is that when we feel it, it's too late. And, 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 you know, we, we can't wait for a nuclear accident or a mistake or nuclear use again to kind of deal with this issue. It's going to be too late. So we really have to act on it before. And I know it's really hard for people, especially recognizing that there's so much suffering now and there's so many issues that are happening. And that's why I really believe that, you know, we need to look at these things together. It's not nuclear weapons. And, you know, that means we don't work on climate change or we don't work on um, police brutality or all these other things. We have to look at them together as part of this, you know, oppressive structures that were created and could start protecting people. You know, I think that's a, a great way to, to cap off our conversation. Uh, I feel like this is a great way for us to to have conversations and I want to thank you for coming on Black Diplomats and I hope I could uh, Beatrice and invite you on again in the future to talk about these issues um, in, in more depth because we need more people like you helping me and helping everyone else to get the knowledge to really explain 
how destructive these weapons are. And I know in my role as a journalist with a platform, I definitely am going to be uh, working and writing and podcasting more about this subject, especially here in America, because I see this going right along with our Black Lives Matter movement as well. So again, I'm so thankful for you, uh, Beatrice Finn, who's the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and 2017 Nobel Prize winner. Thank you so much. It's really, really great to be and having this conversation. I think that these are the kind of conversations we should be having. Now. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Black Diplomats. We especially want to shout out our patrons, Mark Lacey, Ashanti Galar, Joanne Cook, and Catherine Yamayanov. If you like this episode, please become a patron at the link in the episode notes. Also, rate and subscribe to Black Diplomats on your favorite podcast platform. The intro and outro music is brought to you by my fellow Detroiter, Tall Black Guy.